Well, it is indeed a privilege to be with you at uh, this annual conference and to think together about certain aspects of our heritage as Reformed believers. Uh, the first uh, session is really an overview of something of our heritage as those who loved uh, the doctrines of grace and the Reformed faith. And uh, as you can imagine, given the span of time and the kind of geographical extent of that heritage, we will move fairly fast. I'm really going to touch down at uh, three points, as it were, uh, to, uh, in addition to this overview, give some kind of uh, detail or in-depth focus. I'm going to begin with John Calvin, uh, a logical place to begin. I'm going to actually begin by reading his longest account of his conversion and see how in that account there are some of the great principles of Reformed thinking and the Reformed faith laid out for us. And then I will, over the next few minutes after looking at that, move to America and look at an 18th century figure, Samuel Davies, the, really the father of Presbyterianism in the South and his ministry in Virginia. And then finally I will end in the late 19th century with a Scottish uh, Presbyterian, well known, I suspect, to all of you through his hymns, uh, Horatius Bonner. And uh, in the course of this uh, first talk, then, really trying to give an overview of uh, where uh, God has led Reformed believers in the past, uh, what he has done through their lives, something of the principles and uh, uh, convictions that they have had. I begin then with uh, John Calvin and really five hallmarks from his ministry that have characterized the Reformed faith. Of all the Reformers, John Calvin is probably the one who is the most self-effacing, the one who, uh, in documents that were intended to be read by the public, said the least about himself. He contrasts very strongly in this regard with Martin Luther. Luther was ever ready to, in contemporary evangelical jargon, share his testimony. One, for instance, your a good example is you're reading, for example, through the book of Genesis in his commentary on Genesis, and uh, something in the life of Pharaoh reminds him, the story of Joseph and Pharaoh, reminds him about the papacy. And so he starts to talk about the papacy, and as soon as he starts to talk about the papacy, well, he has to talk about how God delivered him from uh, Roman uh, Catholicism, and so he begins to talk about his conversion, and after a couple of pages, remembers he's actually writing a commentary on Genesis, and comes back to the text. Well, you never find that in Calvin. In fact, there are really only three passages that were ever meant for public reading, for others to read, in which Calvin talks about what God did in his life. We're going to look at one of them. It's not long, but it capsulizes, I think, some of the hallmarks of Reformed thinking. Very briefly, Calvin was born in 1509. He died in 1564. He was led by the providence of God to the city of Geneva in 1536. He intended to stay there one night. He ended up staying there pretty well the rest of his life, except for a brief three-year exile, quote-unquote, when the church fathers in uh, Geneva in 1538 decided they didn't exactly want the sort of preaching that Calvin brought 
and he was kicked out. And uh, told, he told friends he would never return to Geneva. The place was a cross. He'd rather die a thousand deaths than ever go back there. Uh, but when they called him to return as the leading preaching elder at the Church of St. Peter's in Geneva, he returned in 1541 and then was there till his death in 1564. The passage that I'm going to read comes from his commentary on the book of Psalms, one of Calvin's favorite books. It would set uh, his love of the Psalms uh, is typical of the Reformed heritage that has loved the Psalter and found in it a, a book of inspiration. In the preface to the commentary on the Psalms, he recounts his life. And I'm coming in midway, as it were. He's been talking about how God led his father to initially send him to Paris to study theology. But then somewhere in the mid-1520s, when uh, Calvin was in his teens, his father changed his mind. He changed his mind because he had come to the conviction that it was better for his son financially to go into law than to study theology. And so he shifted his son from Paris to the town of Orleans. To this pursuit, the study of the law, I endeavored faithfully to apply myself, Calvin writes, in obedience to the will of my father. But God, by the secret guidance of his providence, at length gave a different direction to my course. At first, since I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of popery to be easily extricated from so profound an abyss, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame, which is more hardened in such matters than might have been expected from one at my early period of life. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein, that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, I yet pursued them with less ardor. As I said, this is the longest account, it's not long at all, but the longest account that we have from Calvin's hand about how God brought him to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are in it, I think, four hallmarks, and then I'm going to add a fifth from his ministry that characterize the, form, the Reformed faith. The first is the great conviction that Reformed men and women have had over the years that God is the sovereign Lord of history. He talks here about how God, by the secret guidance of his providence, as he looked back on his life, and he was writing this in 1557, and so he's looking back now 30 years or more, as he looked back on his life, he saw his father, who had come to a conviction regarding his son's future, and transferred him from Paris, where he was studying at the Sorbonne, a very conservative school, and one that was deeply enmeshed in Roman Catholic theology, to a rather newer school at Orleans. It was in Orleans he met the first evangelical, a German Lutheran scholar by the name of Melchior Volmar, who asked Calvin, would he like to learn Greek? And he'd be willing to teach him. And as he taught him, he shared the gospel with him. And so Calvin could look back on what was his father's purposes and plans, but there was an overruling purpose, God's secret providence, 
which is hidden often, at the t- often from the eyes of those who are going through it in terms of their specific circumstances. And only later, looking back, can you see God's hand. But here is a great conviction that Reformed men and women have had over the years. God is the Lord of history. He is the one who guides nations and individuals. Secondly, Calvin says nothing here in the text about Melchior Volmar. Where do we know that from? Well, we know that from other texts that he wrote. He says nothing here about Melchior Volmar's witness. He says nothing about the fact that one of his cousins, a man named Pierre Olivetin, who was the uh, first man to translate the scriptures from Greek and Hebrew into French, had come to Christ before Calvin, shared the gospel with Calvin. Calvin says nothing about that. Calvin says nothing about the fact that after his uh, time in Orléans, he went back to Paris and lived in the home of a man named Etienne de la Forge, who was one of the first martyrs of the Reformation in France, was burned at the stake in the early 1530s. Calvin lived in his home. He heard the gospel from this man's lips. My point here is that Calvin says nothing about human intermediaries in sharing the gospel with him. Calvin knew that that was important. If we had time, we could spend a considerable amount of time going through Calvin's words of the importance of Christians when they are given an open door to share their faith in Christ to do so. Calvin, contrary to what many have thought, had a deep sense of mission for Europe particularly, and other parts of the world. In fact, it's not well known, but Calvin actually encouraged and sponsored a mission to Brazil, which ended in ruin. But uh, there is this passion for the spread of the gospel. But Calvin says none of that about these human intermediaries, although he knows it's important that it is through men and women that God transmits the faith. He says none of that because ultimately salvation is God's great work. And God is to receive the glory. If I were to ask, what is, the, what is the hallmark of Calvin's teaching? It is not, although this is something he affirms, it is not predestination or election, which is often associated with Calvin. Rather, the great hallmark at the beginning of Calvin's thinking that shaped all of it was that God is a glorious being who is to receive glory and honor due his name. And especially when it comes to the great work of salvation, God is the author from beginning to end. And he is the one who is to receive the honor and glory of being known as the Savior. We think of the later statement in the Shorter Westminster Catechism, that first question, what is the chief end of man, 17th century language? What is the reason why we exist? Well, the answer, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And it comes directly out of a a, a train of thinking that goes back to Calvin. And I think you can see it in this account of his conversion. Thirdly, Calvin says that God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought his mind to a teachable frame. A sudden conversion. Calvin originally wrote this in Latin. The translation I'm reading from is actually a a late 19th century translation. And the word sudden, the Latin word, could also be translated unexpected. And I think that's probably the better translation. 
Calvin had no intent on being converted. When Calvin was studying in Orléans, he, and he began to hear about evangelicals, and that word was used in the 1500s, it's used in the 1520s. When he began to hear about evangelicals, he didn't get the inkling initially, well, I'd like to become one of them. He had a firm commitment to the church. He tells us this in another passage that one of the things that challenged him about the evangelical faith was, was it a schism from the church? And Calvin had a great love for the church. And, uh, but God unexpectedly broke into his life. And here we see, I think, that great Calvinist uh, perspective and reform perspective on what we call irresistible grace, that God, when he determines to save an individual, does so. And he will draw them. doesn't mean, and I'm sure you know this, it doesn't mean that God treats men and women like automatons or machines. God creates a hunger and a desire in the heart, and in, in so doing, draws that person to himself. But here we see that, I think, that great reformed doctrine of the irresistible nature of the Spirit's drawing of men and women to the Lord Jesus. And then fourthly, and I think this is very important, Fourthly, Calvin says that after he was converted, he was immediately inflamed with an intense desire to know more of God. I have a book at home that was given to me by a, a French uh, believer, and uh, it's a book written in French, written by a Roman Catholic historian around the year 1900, and it talks about it's basically a history of the church and uh, from a Roman Catholic perspective. And the section dealing with Calvin is very interesting. And Calvin comes in for the heaviest abuse of all the reformers. And Calvin is depicted in the book as a cold, calculating man, a man of very little emotion. Now, it's true that Calvin did not wear his emotions on his sleeve, unlike Luther. I'm sure if you sat down with Luther, within a few minutes, Luther would be telling all about his life and exactly, again, about his conversion story. Calvin is not like that. But his emotions are deep, and they are there, whether or not he wears them on his sleeve. And uh, here we have an, an, an example of that, the, the passion for God, the hunger to know Christ. It's interesting that Calvin would later, for his correspondence, and uh, various books that he would publish would have a motto created, a symbol, um, in which would, would be imprinted on his stationery. And it's an open hand with a heart on it. And uh, the Latin, Comium tibi offro domini, prompte et sancere. I give you my heart, Lord, eagerly and earnestly. And you see there, I think, that something that sometimes has been forgotten, even by, even by those of the Reformed faith, that running through our heritage has been a rich piety, to use an older word, or a rich spirituality, to use a more contemporary word. I think in our day, this is something that needs to be recaptured greatly by us who love the Reformed faith. We live in a world that is passionate about spirituality, increasingly. Uh, New Age spirituality, all kinds of uh, uh, Hindu, Buddhist spirituality. 
And uh, in evangelical circles, there is this hunger for heart religion and uh, frequently turned in directions, I think, that are not helpful. Going back to various forms of Roman Catholic spirituality, reading people like John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila. And we as Reformed believers have a rich, rich heritage of Reformed piety, Reformed spirituality that stretches back to the time of Calvin. And Calvin, I think, sets a pattern here that at the heart of the Reformed faith is this walk with God that is evidenced in things like prayer and a love for the worship of the church and an attention to things like the Lord's table and so on. The fifth hallmark of Calvin's life that is a hallmark of the Reformed tradition or Reformed faith is the preaching of the word. Calvin, as I said, was uh, led by God to Geneva in 1536. He tends to spend a night there. The king of France, Francis I, had issued a decree that anyone who had left the Church of Rome in France had three choices if they chose to, if they were in the country. They either could return to Rome, they could face death, or they could go into exile. Calvin chose to go into exile. And he left his beloved country never to see her again. He would end up going, spending his life, as I've said, in Geneva. He intended initially, though, to go to Strasbourg. But the road to Strasbourg was closed up by war. He hoped he could get there to settle down to a quiet life of academia. Calvin had a shy side, uh, something I've already intimated in. And Calvin didn't see himself as a public figure in any way, shape, or form, or called to public service in the church. And he wanted a quiet academic spot where he could write some books. He had already written one book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, published first in 1536. It would go through many editions over the next 30 years. But it had become known among Francophone believers in France and Switzerland. One of the men who read it was Guillaume Farel, Farrell, or William Farrell, as we know him in English. Farrell was a passionate evangelist, a man who loved nothing more than going up and down the hills of the Swiss Alps, well, more than hills, the mountains of the Swiss Alps, into the valleys, preaching the gospel. And he had come to Geneva in the early 1530s to preach the gospel. He went into the town square, town of about 8,000 people, preached the word, and was kicked out promptly. Didn't phase uh, Farrell. He came back a few months later, preached again. This time, he was allowed to stay overnight, but the authorities in the town figured this man's going to be a troublesome individual. We're going to deal with him. They decided to slip into his meal that evening some poisonous mushrooms. Well, Farrell was a giant of a man in many respects with a stomach like an iron cast uh, pot or a pan, And he woke up in the morning with something of an upset stomach, but he wasn't dead. And the authorities discovered it, and he was kicked out again. He came back a third time, this time with another preacher named Pierre Verret, or Peter Verret. And this time the uh, the gospel stuck, and a number of the town fathers were converted, and he was allowed to stay. But he wasn't a, a pastor. He was a evangelist, and he longed to to leave what he had founded there to get out and go start 
uh, preaching in other villages. And so he hears of Calvin coming to the town. Calvin's on his way to Strasbourg. The main road to Strasbourg is closed. And he hears of Calvin coming to the town. And he goes to see him in the only inn in the town. And he begins to plead with him. Will you not stay with me? I've read your book. It's, it surely indicates a man of some theological depth. And you're just the man we need here to teach the, the people here. Well, Calvin is insistent. No, you don't realize. I'm a, I'm a scholar. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a preacher. I, I'm going to Strasbourg to, to write some books. And I'm, a, I'm an academic. And I need a library. And not the hustle and bustle of pastoral life. And, and Pharrell, as the night wears on, is more and more frustrated until finally he does what would be an interesting way of calling a pastor, he says to Calvin, may God curse you and all your studies unless you stay here with me. And Calvin said it was as if the hand of God came down from heaven and rooted him to the spot. Pharrell was a, could be a ferocious individual in appearance when he wanted to be. And Calvin was terrified and horrified. And he stayed. And uh, central to his ministry, as I say, it's not the normal way we call pastors, uh, but uh, thus was the way God called Calvin to Geneva. And central to his ministry was the preaching of the word. If you'd ask Calvin, why are you in Geneva? It is that God's word might be set forth in all of its fullness, in all of its detail to the people of God. And he began doing something that a number of preachers had already started in Europe, in particular, Hodreich Zwingli, I'll mention him a little in a minute, a German-speaking Reformed believer in Zurich. That is, he began to preach systematically through the Scriptures, book by book. It had not been done in Europe since the days of the early church. John Chrysostom in the 4th century was such a preacher. And a fabulous example of this, in 1538, as I mentioned, he was kicked out of Geneva because the town fathers, really what they wanted, some of them, was liberation from, the, uh, from having to pay taxes to, the, to, the, to Rome that went down to build the Vatican. And the gospel, in their minds, was a convenient way of getting rid of the Roman Catholic uh, domination of the city. They didn't really want gospel preaching. And when they heard Calvin, he got kicked out too, two years later. And he did get to Strasbourg. That's where he would meet his wife, Idelette de Bourg. In the middle of his um, preaching, he was in Job. And he was expelled from the city. And three years later, as I said, he was called back. And he came back in 1541. And when the first Sunday back, he said a little bit about his principles as a preacher. And then he said these words. As I was saying in verse 3 of Job 7. The three years intervening, kind of being completely forgotten. And what you have there is a man who saw his life's work as the preaching of the word. And that becomes a hallmark of Reformed faith, the centrality of the word in all of life, but especially in worship. And we'll touch on that a little more in the final session today. Now, I've chosen Calvin because he... He gives a fabulous window into the Reformed faith, the fabulous way of seeing these hallmarks, God's glory as the sovereign, as the, the, the main purpose for our existence, God's uh, sovereignty in history, God's sovereignty in individuals when he calls a man or a woman to himself. 
He creates that delight in that person and draws them. The hunger for God that has characterized Reformed faith at its best, and then the preaching of the Word. Those hallmarks are fabulously displayed in the life of Calvin. But I would, it would be wrong to think that Calvin is the only figure at the fountainhead of the Reformed faith in the Reformation. There are many others. Calvin would be horrified, I think, from what we know of him, to hear people say that they're Calvinists. I think, and I think it's an okay term to describe ourselves by, but Calvin, we're not followers of Calvin. And those who have loved the Reformed faith of the years, I think of Jonathan Edwards. I'll touch on him a little in uh, this first session and uh, then one later session. Edwards could say, I never read any of John Calvin. But those truths that are described as Calvinist, I love them because I find them in the Scriptures. And so Calvin then, first of all, he would be, I think, nonplussed by the description of Calvinism. But it's also important to see that Calvin is not the only figure at this fountainhead. There are a number of, if you want to describe, keep that image, fountainheads, as it were, a number of remarkable ministries that God raises up. One thinks of Holdreich Zwingli in Zurich, and then after him, he's German-speaking, after him, Heinrich Bullinger uh, in Germany, or John Knox in Scotland, and the men whom God raised up in Scotland around him, or in England, uh, John Hooper, or Thomas Cramner, often remembered as one of the key founders of the Anglican Church, but he was deeply Reformed. If you've ever read the 39 articles, it's a Reformed art, a document. And so there is a variety of men that God used who shared a commonality, there are also, in the early years of the Reformation, a variety of places where Reformed truth took root. It took root in Geneva. Geneva was probably one of the most important places in Europe. From 8,000 people, over the course of Calvin's lifetime, it swelled to 16,000. Refugees from all over Europe, many of the local inhabitants of Geneva complained mightily about all these foreigners who'd come to take over their city. Uh, all kinds of men and uh, women came there to, to live and to study, some of them to study under Calvin, men like John Knox. Uh, the, one of the earliest English Bibles, the Geneva Bible, which is the Bible of the early Puritans, was printed in Geneva, obviously, Geneva Bible. Uh, believers from Spain, Italy, Hungary, Holland came to Geneva. And Geneva became a central place for the Reformation. But many other places where Reformed teaching took root, southern Germany, Zurich, Holland, Scotland, the British Isles in general, Hungary, parts of Poland. In fact, in uh, later years, and this is a little after the time of Calvin, the early 1600s, uh, the patriarch of Constantinople, Cyril Lucatus, was converted and issued a confession of faith which was a Reformed confession of faith and was in correspondence with other Reformed teachers in Europe. But despite the, the fact that you've got a variety of starting points and a, a variety of places where Reformed truth took root, there are some similarities to Reformed teaching and Reformed thinking. And so that if you went to a Reformed church in Hungary and could understand the language, and then went to France, and Holland, and Scotland, and not all of the churches in England, but many of them, there would be a similarity in a number of areas. First of all, we'll touch on this in more detail in the last session, 
there was a greatly simplified form of worship. There is, in some respects, a radical break made with much of the Middle Ages. By the end of the Middle Ages, the worship of the medieval church had become one in which there was great devotion to externals, great devotion to ritual, great, uh, great emphasis on the essentials of worship being in the hands of a few, namely the priest. And there is a break with all of that. There's a much simpler form of worship, much simpler than the other major wing of the Reformation, the Lutheran. And uh, I won't go into details about why the Reformed differs from the Lutheran, but there is, a, there is a simpler form of worship. Going back to the early church's experience of worship, the centrality of the word, the celebration of the sacraments, prayer, and praise in singing. Though building the service around those four kind of axes. Third, secondly, church government. Instead of the Episcopal system of the Middle Ages, as these Reformed believers went back to Scripture, they could not find the Episcopal system in Scripture. They knew that the early church often equated the term bishop, as the English term we know it, with the term elder. And that, in fact... Bishops and elders were one in the same office. And so there is a break with a medieval form of church government. Church government was placed in the hands of elders, and thus we have the rise of what we call the Presbyterian form of church government, in which the word presbyter, elder, is the heart of that understanding of church government. Now, later in the Reformed tradition, in fact, it starts fairly early. In France, a man named Jean-Baptiste Morelli begins to think along the lines of what we call congregationalist thinking. And there emerges very early on in the Reformed tradition some Reformed believers who hold in common with other Reformed believers uh, convictions I've already talked about who argue for a congregationalist form of government. Those uh, traditions would become known in later years as congregationalist and then Calvinistic Baptist or particular Baptist. Even since, especially since the 18th century, and especially, since, especially in America, most Presbyterian uh, denominations would also have a congregational element, which is, I think, a bit shaped by the kind of democratic ethos of the country, particularly here of America. But there is a, there is a desire to go back to Scripture and find in Scripture what does the word say about the government of the church? And then thirdly, there is the insistence that one of the ways of maintaining doctrinal purity is through confessions of faith. And there's all kinds of them. One of the earliest is the Tetrapolitan Confession. You don't necessarily remember, need to remember all these, these names and things, but just the idea is the, the larger picture. The Tetrapolitan Confessor, Martin Butzer, drew that up in in, uh, in Strasbourg in 1530. There is the 1536 Geneva Confession that Calvin wrote with Farel. There is the Confession of La Rochelle, which was the doctrinal standard for the Huguenot churches. That great body of Reformed believers, at 1.2 million Reformed believers in France from the 1520s. I think it's one of, the, it's one of my favorite stories. It's 
from the 1520s, when there might have been a few hundred evangelicals in France, by the death of Calvin, there are two million in 40 years. It's a story we've, in the English-speaking world, we've long forgotten. And uh, just a remarkable move of God in bringing the light of the gospel and really revival, as we would describe it. Um, there's the Scottish Confession of Faith, which becomes uh, the standard that John Knox establishes the Church of Scotland on, at least until the Westminster Confession. There's the Irish Articles. Uh, I was, I'm, my background's Irish, and my uh, personal background in terms of religion is uh, Roman Catholic. And um, when I was growing up, I knew nothing about the fact that there were I any Irish Protestants. Uh, they, well, they weren't mentioned in my... My, my parents' home, uh, but there's a rich heritage of Irish Reformed uh, faith in the Irish Articles in 1615. And of course, then you come down into the 17th century, you've got the Westminster Confession, which has provided, which has been the standard for English-speaking Presbyterian churches ever since. And uh, in other words, there is this commitment to confessions of faith in which uh, re the Reformed faith has been specifically and purposely confessional. And I think that's a good thing. And I don't think evangelicalism, broadly speaking, has been helped by those in the 19th century, evangelicals, well-meaning, who said, the Bible is our creed and confession. We don't need these confessions. In one sense, there's, you can understand where they're coming from, because at the heart of the Reformed tradition has been that great Reformation statement, Scripture alone. It is Scripture we go back to. But it is helpful for the church to have statements of faith that encapsulate, that summarize biblical doctrine by which those who are called to public ministry and those who are brought into membership can affirm their faith on the basis of these. And uh, I think some of the problems that we have today that uh, Pastor Polk alluded to earlier there of the kind of generic evangelicalism that is losing its way, part of the reason is because of its lack of a confessional basis. There's no doubt in the 16th century, it was the Reformed communities in Europe that were at the cutting edge of the Reformation. I think I, one could argue and prove this historically, that if it had not been for these Reformed communities, the Reformation would not have gone forward. Lutheranism got bogged down early on in Germany and in Scandinavia and didn't have a, a sense of impulse. It was the Reformed believers with a rich sense of the sovereignty of God, the invincibility of the gospel, that had this idea of going into all the parts of Europe and preaching the biblical gospel and seeing what God might do. And uh, you've got some great stories. You've got John Knox and Scottish Presbyterianism, the French Huguenots that I've talked about earlier, the Dutch Calvinists in Holland and their, their great fight against Spanish domination of their country. The English Puritans who fought for a hundred years to, to see complete reformation of the Church of England and ended up failing. But it's a great story. And... Um, Unfortunately, today, for many, the word Puritan has negative overtones. I'm sure if I said to you, uh, well, I think you're a little puritanical, 
you would understand that, and my, by using that term, would know that's a bit of a negative term. But the truth of the matter is, the Puritans were remarkable Bible-based individuals who had a holistic view of, of life rooted in the Scriptures. And we can learn much from them. Now let me jump down then to the uh, 18th century. By the time you move into the 18th century, many of the Reformed communities are in disarray. And there is a need for revival. The Huguenots have gone through a century of vicious persecution. The Puritans failed to bring reform to the Church of England, and many of them were forced to leave England to come to what they called, and I'm quoting the words of Oliver Cromwell in the 1630s, a howling wilderness, namely New England. Um, and many of the, the reformed churches were in desperate need of a new breath of God. And that comes in the Great Awakening, when God raises up, particularly in the English-speaking world, a variety of remarkable preachers, all of them, except for two brothers, are reformed. The two brothers of the Wesleys. And even they are, as John Wesley once said, we are within an inch of Calvinism. And uh, J.I. Packer has, I think, rightly said that the Wesleys are inconsistent Calvinists, and certainly Charles is. I'm not sure you can say that about John in some of his theology, but certainly Charles is in his hymnody. That's why his hymnody is sung by Reformed churches all, all over the world, because it is, it is rich and it harmonizes very well with what we believe. And God raises up these remarkable preachers. Probably the most remarkable is George Whitfield, the Anglican, but a, a man who learned his theology from reading Puritan uh, tomes and, and the, the scriptures. And among these men is Samuel Davies. And in the 18th century, Reformed churches are centers of revival. And uh, Samuel Davies, his dates are 1723, 1761, converted when he was 15. He went to train under uh, a couple of men known as the Tennant Brothers, and eventually was called to Virginia, Hanover County. And when he went there, he started with a handful of people. In Virginia, the established church at the time was the Anglican Church, and he was heavily persecuted, and his people would be persecuted by the, the church there. But God began to work through his preaching in the central note of preaching the word. And uh, by 1750, uh, instead of one place of preaching, he had eight. And within three years of his coming to Virginia, there were 300 communicants at the Lord's Supper. And by 1753, some 600 communicants. And by the time that he leaves in 1758, he goes to become the president of Princeton when a, a presbytery is formed. And the area that he used to preach over all by itself, there, are now, there were now eight churches and five established ministers. And uh, his work lays the foundation for all of the ministry that goes south into the Carolinas and into Georgia and then eventually over into some of the other states like Alabama, Mississippi, and, and the founding of Southern Presbyterianism. If you'd asked uh, Davies what, what lay behind this remarkable blessing of God, he could say this, 
If a well-disposed Lydia gives a believing attention to the things spoken by Paul, it is because the Lord has opened her heart. Acts 16, 14. The Philippians believe because, says the apostle, to you it is given on behalf of Christ to believe. The Ephesians were spiritually alive, he says. You he is quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. Faith is not of ourselves. It is expressly the gift of God. The implanting of faith is an exploit of omnipotence, like that of the resurrection of Christ. Repentance is the gift of God. When the Jewish Christians heard of the success of the gospel among the Gentiles, they unanimously ascribed it to God. Then, God hath, also, then, God, then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Acts eleven eighteen. The first implanting of grace in the heart of a sinner is entirely the work of God. And you see here again this great emphasis on the sovereign work of God, yet it did not hinder his activity in the gospel. And what I love about the 18th century man is they have this deep conviction of the sovereignty of God in salvation, but the passion to go out there and preach. No idea, oh, well, the Lord will save his people. We just sit back and let it happen. But they're out there doing it. And that the means by which God saves his people is through the preaching of the word. They would readily resonate with Luther, who said on one occasion, when Luther was asked, why did the Reformation take place in Germany? Well, Luther said, I preached the word. And then I slept. And this is then, the following remark is typically Luther. I drank Wittenberg beer with Melanchthon. And the Lord did the, Lord did the work. But there is that preaching, that activity, that sharing the gospel. And if you know anything about the life of Whitfield, it's just a, a man who traveled over land and sea, preaching, it's estimated in his lifetime, he preached 18,000 sermons between 1738 and his death in 1770. And Davies was such a preacher. He did not have the physical frame to sustain his ministry. And when he came to Princeton as the successor of Jonathan Edwards, who had only been in office a few months, within three years he was dead. Mark Knoll, who's a historian of this period, has said that if he had lived, he probably would have been the most remarkable college president before the War of Independence in America. And so those are two great highlights of Presbyterian Reformed history as you look at the, the, the time of the Reformation, Reformed communities being the centers of Reformation. In the 18th century, Reformed communities being the centers of revival. When we come into the 19th century and the early 20th century, we come into a period of great challenge. In the 19th century, in America, there is division. And the division sadly comes between north and south. And the issue is slavery. We're actually going to talk about that in our third hour, the whole area of the reformed attempts to end the slave trade. But slavery becomes a divider between northern and southern Presbyterian in the middle of the 19th century. And then as you move into the latter part of the 19th century, division comes over the issues called liberal theology. And there are great struggles that take place uh, here in North America. Incidentally, I should mention, already in other parts of Europe, the Reformed faith is suffered by the inroads of liberalism. 
In England, English Presbyterianism completely succumbed to liberal theology in the 18th century. And virtually all of the Unitarian churches in England today have Presbyterian roots. Geneva, by the early 19th century, was a place of liberal theology. It's, it's a horrifying thing to see. And um, liberalism comes into North America, and there are great battles that take place. And I'm a Canadian, and uh, if you were to study Presbyterian and uh, Calvinistic Baptist history in Ontario, huge battles that normally centered on seminaries. Similarly, here in America, there were great battles, and some of you may know something of the struggles of Gresham Machen and uh, the formation of the OPC in the 1930s. But I actually want to go back, and I want to finish with a man who was at the beginning of those struggles, and to see from his life how he can give us some pointers to our day. It's Horatius Bonner. We know him as a hymn writer. He's probably the finest Scottish hymn writer of the 19th century. In the 1860s, when liberalism was first coming into Britain, it would devastate many Presbyterian congregations in Britain. Uh, uh, Bonner could write these words, and I've got two long quotes, and listen closely, and he's, he's urging his readers to hold on to the rich heritage of the past, not for the sake of tradition, but for the sake of truth. It is not from mere love of what is old that I've been led to re-edit, and he's talking about the Confessions of Faith of Scotland, these standards of the Church of Scotland. I wish certainly to preserve them, not, though, as mere fossils for a museum, not as the footprints of an extinct race, not as the relics of an obsolete religion. I reprint them because of their genuine value and as embodying truth, which is just as necessary for us as they were for our fathers. The truths of the Reformation are not obsolete. I think here of a book that was recently written, uh, Is the Reformation Over?, and the author's argument was, yes, it is, and I would disagree. They are not old anchorage ground, which the elevation of the coast during these last three centuries has left dry, nor these catechisms, old anchors, from which the cables have been slipped and have been left to rust on the beach. The doctrines they teach are not ephemeral. They're not, nor of the formulae or the words in which our fathers clothed them proved to be inaccurate and inadequate insofar as they do not fit in with the spirit of the age, because that's one of the great things that Victorians, some of the quote-unquote advanced thinkers in the Victorian period said, the Reformation theology and the revival theology of the 18th century, it's antiquated. We're, we're, we're seeing great advances in science and technology. We've got to move ahead and forget the past. Insofar as they do not fit in with the spirit of the age, there is room for fair inquiry as to whether the fault may not belong to the age rather than to these confessions. And then he goes on to say, some well-meaning amateur theologians warn us of the danger of not keeping abreast of the age as if we were imperiling Christianity by not being as learned in modern speculations as they are. We should certainly like to keep abreast of all that is true and good, either in this age or any other. But as to doing more than that, or singling out this age as being preeminently worthy of being kept abreast of, we hesitate. What he's saying is, there are many ages to choose from. Why is our age the best and 
we need to forget everything else. In attempt to keep, attempting to keep abreast of the age, there is some danger of falling short of other ages. And we are not sure, but the object of those who shake this phrase so complacently in our faces, both as a taunt and a threat, is to draw us off from the past altogether. And then he says, many of our young men are more afraid of being reckoned Calvinistic than Platonic. They shirk from bold statements of Reformation doctrine. Many are doing their best to serve two masters, to preach two gospels, to subscribe to two confessions of faith, to grasp two worlds, they would either neither be very evangelical nor very heretical. And here you see, I think, reform, the reformed faith at its best. One, its commitment to scripture. And the second, the commitment to confessional Christianity on which the basics have not changed. There's much that has changed in that world and us from that world, but the basic needs of men and women are still the same. We still need to find peace with a holy God. We still need to find peace with that holy God through the one Lord Jesus Christ. And that Lord Jesus Christ is very God and very man. And he reveals to us that the God whom we worship is a triune God. And these sorts of statements don't change with the ages. Bonner's remembered as a great hymn writer, and I want to close this first session with some words from one of his hymns, not what these hands have done. Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh is born can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this way to sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this soul bondage break. And now this, these lines, which I think resonate with that rich heritage of spirituality. I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine. And with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this Savior mine. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the rich heritage of the past. And our prayer is that we might be found faithful in this day, in a day of compromise, a day of confusion. You have called us to bear the light of the gospel, to speak to our day. And we thank you that while we do not live in the past, we can be inspired and encouraged by those who have gone before. May we be found faithful. And this for your glory and for the glory of your only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.